0: Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all those places. And I have a blog that you can check out as well and that is cagerredux.com, that's cagerreduxcom thats c a g e r r e d u x All right. Today is Thursday, January 20th, 2022. And on paper, at least, this is going to be a big day for college sports because today the NCAA membership is going to take up this new constitution and there will be a formal vote on whether or not to ratify it. And I'm going to be paying close attention to what comes out from NCAA Central today. And hopefully we will Get a vote, a final vote, and also a copy, hopefully a copy of the actual document that was presented for ratification. Because remember, we don't really know exactly what that final document looks like. We had the initial draft on November 8th, then we had an amendment to that on December 7th, then another amendment on December 14th. And in some of the pre convention propaganda pieces out of the NCAA, there was a suggestion that there was going to be more discussion about the terms of the constitution so i don't think we know for sure what this last draft looks like and the final product looks like and it's possible that there could be some changes and what i'm going to do after this vote now i'm assuming that this constitution whatever is presented to the membership is going to be ratified because the in-system stakeholders, particularly the, the Power Five interests who really have kind of commandeered this process, they set the table pretty well, and they bought off Divisions Two and Three, and they have situated themselves to have control of the discussion going forward through this Board of Directors Transformation Committee. And I've talked at length about this Constitution Committee, the Transformation Committee, and the process, and you can go back and check out those episodes if you'd like. But I am going to have to take some time to look at this final document and compare it to the prior drafts and see what if any changes have been made. And then we can start to talk about next steps and what I think is likely to happen and what issues I think are likely to be at the top of the list for this Division I Board of Directors Transformation Committee. And then how that work ties into all of these other moving parts in the regulatory model of big-time college sports and, more importantly, the business model of big-time college sports. Because lurking beneath all of the rhetoric and all of the regal, bold language about transformative change and acting only with the best interest of the student-athletes in mind, underneath all that is a rapacious, business motive for all of these participants in the money products, in big-time football, big-time basketball, and all of the surrounding satellite stakeholder beneficiaries in the multi-billion dollar business of big-time college sports. Let's not be mistaken here. This is about money. This is about power. This is about market share. And this is about absolute iron-fisted control over the regulatory model and the business model. It's something that the NCAA and Power 5 We're doing together, jointly, since 2019 in their quest for the Iron Throne of college sports in Congress and in federal courts. And as I've discussed in prior episodes, They've had to readjust their strategy, and now the Power Five are basically putting the NCAA in the back seat, and the Power Five is now in the driver's seat. And that is very clear from the composition of this Division I Board of Directors transformation committee. But I I wanna talk a little bit about some of the things that have happened since my last episode. And I wanna reemphasize one of the overarching themes of my podcast and, and my blogging, and that is that you can never look at a single issue a single event a single milestone in the regulatory model or the business model of big time college sports you have to zoom out and look at what's happening together from different components of the overall business and regulatory model then another important overarching theme that i've reinforced time and time again is that almost all the information that we get about the business of big time college sports runs through people institutions and interests that have a direct financial stake in preserving the basic elements of the business model. So I I have tried in my podcast to dig beneath what we get from public statements, what we get from news accounts, what we get from spin doctors uh, who are part of the, the business model. And because of the self-serving nature of what we get through these in-system filters, and these are very powerful filters, some of the most powerful in America, and they run through the mainstream media, they run through the sports media, they run through the institutions in higher education, through all of the alliances, the conferences, the NCAA, all of these interests are extraordinarily powerful. And... They are only going to tell you what they think you need to know. And a big part of this game has been trying to get uh, public support for certain of the things that have been happening behind the scenes. And what's happening with this constitutional makeover and also with these discussions about the expansion of the CFP are really good examples. And because we never really know for sure what's happening behind the scenes, we have to rely on our common sense, on our critical thinking, on uh, drawing intelligent judgments from the information that comes out. So, I want to talk about a few of these things and just put them on the table because I think it's important to to have as much of this on the table as possible as we're analyzing what's going to happen moving forward with what I think will be a new constitution. So, there are really three things, and I think they're all related. But if you read news accounts of these three things, or you were paying attention to those three things, You would never know that they are tied together. And the first thing is the way that the NCAA has pitched this new constitution in the roll-up to the convention. That's the first thing. The second thing is the announcement by ACC Commissioner Jim Phillips that he and his colleagues in the ACC are not necessarily on board right now with a CFP expansion, and he had some interesting comments. And again, if you read those in isolation, you wouldn't think that there were other moving parts that influenced what he was doing. And that ties into the third thing, and that is a an op-ed that appeared in USA Today on January 13th, penned by Arnie Duncan, who is one of the co-chairs of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, and Jacques McClendon, who is a former pro football player who also serves on the Knight Commission. And it was a really interesting op-ed, in my judgment, and it raised some important themes. But the way that those themes were crafted and packaged and presented diverts attention from some of the more important issues in big-time college sports. And Chief among them, and this is gonna be one of the overarching themes in all three of these things, is that within this quote-unquote debate about the future of college sports at the regulatory model, at the business model, the parameters for discussion are very, very narrow. In the interests of the NCAA versus the uh, interests of the Power Five versus the interests of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, all operate within very narrow parameters and assume the legitimacy of the most basic elements of the business model, including amateurism, the student-athlete, the collegiate model, and the assumption that the institutional interest will always trump the athlete's interests. So let's talk about the the first issue, and that is what I perceived as a change in tone and emphasis in the run-up to this convention. So The week before the convention started, it started yesterday, January 19th. You had all kinds of feel-good stories, and they were announcing the winners of all these awards, and that's a wonderful thing that the NCAA... Does and these are all wonderful people who receive these awards. But you had a lot of uh, splashing around in the public relations waters, but very little discussion about the importance of this vote on the Constitution. In fact, the way that this new Constitution was discussed over the last week. It was really just one item on a long agenda of business items across the three divisions and the importance of this vote the importance of this constitutional makeover really was marginalized in in my judgment and that stands in stark contrast to the way that this initiative was announced from the very beginning and bob gates who was the chair of the Constitution Committee and has been the public face of this constitutional makeover. He said from the very beginning that this was going to be a transformative event for college sports, for the NCAA, and this was one of the biggest things that has ever happened in the NCAA's uh, 100 plus year history. And he was going to do a serious deep dive into aligning NCAA authorities and responsibilities because the NCAA was in a fight for relevance. And I've talked at length about all of those issues. And I did episodes back in August on this alignment of responsibilities and authorities and why the NCAA in the late summer and early fall of 2021 found itself in a position where it was fighting for relevance. The NCAA was in a position of weakness after the summer of 2021 that it had never experienced. And its grand campaign fell apart and out of nowhere comes, oh yeah, now it's time to fundamentally remake the NCAA and rewrite the NCAA constitution. But all of the rhetoric that came out of that committee that came from Bob Gates, that came secondarily from Jack DeJoya, who's the chair of the NCAA Board of Governors, and from Mark Emmert, who has really been pushed into the background here, the NCAA president, all of that rhetoric was really hyped up to make this appear to be an essential and historic movement within the NCAA to take a critical examination of where the NCAA stood in the summer of 2021 and completely remake the way that it operates, the way that it governs itself, and the way that it relates to all of the in-system stakeholders, including the quote-unquote student-athletes. And that initial purpose of the NCAA constitutional makeover, aligning authorities and responsibilities and trying to make the NCAA relevant as a regulator in college sports. And as I've discussed, those issues, those structural issues have been obvious to anyone who's been paying attention and they've existed for years and years and years and the NCAA has done nothing because they were happy with the old status quo. It's only when they got uh, their butts kicked at every turn in Congress, in federal courts, in Trying to prevent these state name, Im- image, and likeness laws from going into effect, all that stuff they lost on all of those issues, and all of a sudden they're talking about this need for transformative change in the way that the NCAA governs itself and the way that it operates. And I- I've said before that if the NCAA and the Power Five had gotten their way in Congress and in federal courts in 2020 and 2021, we're not having this discussion. This Constitution Committee doesn't exist, and the old status quo would have been federalized. Congress and the NCAA and the Power Five would be marching forward with all of their self-righteousness and arrogance, and they would be sitting on the iron throne of college sports regulation, and they would be untouchable. So it was only because they didn't achieve their goals in 2020 and 2021 that we're even having this discussion. And after the initial acknowledgement, I think this was a, a, about as honest as I've heard an NCAA representative uh, portray the state of the NCAA, Gates was pretty straightforward when he was saying, we're in a battle for relevance, we have to align responsibilities and authorities. But then that theme morphed into this hypocritical campaign that this constitutional makeover was all about student-athlete well-being with an emphasis on health and safety and as i've discussed in prior episodes when you look at the drafts that came out the language that from that f- very first draft on november 8th that could arguably have suggested that the ncaa was going to have some enforceable standards relating to health safety and athlete welfare those got taken out and all of the athlete friendly components of that initial draft were an illusion and on the back side We had the same type of constitution that you had before, where you have all these fluffy principles, but there is absolutely no language in any portion of that constitution, which would give the athletes the ability to enforce those proclamations. And you're back to the same issues you had with the old constitution. And that is the ultimate misalignment of responsibilities and authorities. And that is that you have all these fluffy, principles that you claim that your business model and your regulatory model is built upon, but there's no actual legislation that allows any of those principles to be enforced by anyone. Most importantly, though, the student athletes are supposed to be the beneficiaries of those principles. But that was the storyline. And the NCAA just propagandized the heck out of that. And then the rhetoric started to change a little bit. And I think these were subtle, but very important shifts in messaging. You had both Bob Gates and Mark Emmert making public comments that really moved back, pulled back a little bit from this rhetoric about transformational change. And yes, this was important, but the the business goes on. The business of, the, of college sports goes on. And then you also had another narrative develop, and that is that, yes, we have this constitution, but boy, our work is far from over. This is just the, the grand contours of this makeover. And outside of the movement in power from the NCAA to the divisions, a lot of the constitution was really a cut and paste exercise. And I, I did an episode on that theme and I went back and compared the old constitution section by section to the new constitution. And they were substantially the same in terms of the principles that were brought forward. And, and some of it was just verbatim, cut and paste into the new constitution. But the our work isn't over yet. This is just the beginning theme. It was put on the table on January 14th in one of these social series podcast episodes. Again, that's a, a propaganda machine for the NCAA. But you had three representatives, one from each division, including the Division I representative uh, Jerry Moorhead, who's the president of the University of Georgia, who also is the chair of the Division I Board of Directors and is on both the Constitution Committee and the Division I Board of Directors Transformation Committee. He's a very powerful person right now. And he also is, I think, the the head of the SEC conference entity. And, of course, Greg Sankey, who is the co-chair of the Transformation Committee, is the SEC commissioner. So you have a prominent SEC Face on this transformation committee. And I've talked about that as well. But all three of those interests there was a president from Division Two, a president from Division Three, both who serve on, on multiple committees involved with this constitutional makeover. But their message was look, we have a lot to do and there's a lot to work out. So in, in that podcast episode, we heard some of the same rhetoric. This is transformative and this is a historic event and all this stuff. But it was tempered with yes, but, and the but is that that we don't have the details yet and there's a lot to be worked out. And that ties into what Jim Phillips was saying when he announced that the ACC was pulling back from conference expansion and I'll get to that uh, next. But in conjunction with all that, when you go back and you look at the NCAA website over the last week, it's really hard to find these releases, these press releases and these feel good stories that relate directly to this vote that's gonna happen this afternoon. And just, again, reading between the lines and, and looking at tone and looking at word choice and the little things that really are the gateway to understand what's going on behind the scenes. I sense that there may not be as much agreement on some of these details as was portrayed a month ago or two weeks ago. And of course, if you're the NCAA and you are trying to present the propaganda face for the convention, you have to account for the possibility, I think it's remote, but you have to account for the possibility that this new constitution won't get two-thirds uh, majority vote, a super majority of, of votes. I think that's unlikely. I think it's going to happen, but you have to have that in the back of your mind. But it's going to be real interesting to see on the backside of this vote, whatever happens, how the NCAA portrays it. We're going to fold that into our discussion about what the final constitution actually looks like if it is Ratified, so you you have that, and that uh, podcast came out on Friday, January fourteenth. On the same day, on the same day, we get a stop the presses announcement from ACC Commissioner Jim Phillips, and this came after a news conference with a small group of reporters. We're back to that same tactic that the NCAA uses and Mark Emmert uses, so. We don't know who was among this small group of reporters. It's funny, when that tactic is used to try to get a message out and control the message, we never find out who these reporters are. You can try to go back and and piece it together. But I'm going to use a story that came out on ESPN because they have the biggest megaphone. And uh, this was by Andrea Adelson, and it's dated January 14th, 2022. And it's titled, ACC Commissioner Jim Phillips says CFP expansion should wait until changes to sport have been evaluated. That's a big statement because despite Phillips' attempt to say that that isn't a change in position, it sure looked like a fundamental change in position to the outside world. And it was covered as if it was a fundamental change in opinion. And I think the fact that Phillips held held this press conference with a small group of reporters uh, reflects that this is a, a big deal. But in my view, what's important about Phillips' announcement is that he ties the expansion of the CFP to the work of the Transformation Committee and the future of the NCAA. And he Recommended, and again, he's saying that this is what his presidents wanted. And he talks about all the people that he consulted. And it's all the in system stakeholder beneficiaries in the ACC. And apparently, there was consensus, according to Phillips, that the ACC wanted to just put the brakes on these expansion talks for up to a year so there could be a holistic evaluation of the role of big time football in the overall business model and in the regulatory model. And that we needed to really see what was gonna happen in this transformation committee process and what the uh, new NCAA was gonna look like, suggesting that talking about the CFP expansion was really putting the cart before the horse. And that's a very interesting way of looking at it. And as I'm going to discuss with the next thing, when I talk about this op-ed piece in USA Today by the Knight Commission people, that dovetails with the philosophy of the Knight Commission. But in this article, this ESPN article, there's not a, a word about the Knight Commission or the influence of the Knight Commission or the fact that some of these issues that Phillips now raises are identical to the issues that have been raised by the uh, Knight Commission and were articulated in this op-ed. I'm a little bit out of order here because I I wanted to talk about Phillips' decision and then tie it back to the Knight Commission's op-ed and its work because you would never know, reading any of the coverage, of Philip's announcement on Friday, January 14th, that it dovetailed and perfectly aligned with what the Knight Commission had been advocating. But I wanna go through this article by Adelson and just talk about how this issue is presented. And again, this was a carefully manicured message through Select Media Outlet. And it's not a very long article, it's about two and a half pages, but I just wanna hit some of the high points for, for emphasis here. So here's how Adelson begins this article. ACC Commissioner Jim Phillips said Friday, that's January 14th, the league does not believe now is the right time to expand the college football playoff, explaining its position for the first time publicly after discussions to push through a 12-team format have produced no agreement. Phillips said the ACC prefers to, quote, immediately focus and collaborate with our colleagues to reinvent the NCAA before making any decisions about what to do with the playoff a position that leaves the league in the minority when it comes to approving an expanded format before the current 12-year contract ends after the 2025 season. And I just have to note here the irony of Adelson talking about that contract and not mentioning that contract is with ESPN. ESPN's not disinterested here, but there's nothing in this article that ties the contract talks to ESPN as the contract owner. Again, this goes to my theme of everything we get runs through filters that are just drenched in self-interest. And you, you have to read this stuff through that lens. Adelson goes on to say, in explaining the ACC's position, Phillips said that he has had more than 30 meetings with league presidents, athletics directors, football coaches, and administrators, and they all agree there needs to be a 365 day review of college football before any decisions are made. Interestingly, uh, there's no reference to a discussion with the athletes. Although, in a subsequent ESPN article, Phillips says that he spoke to Clemson football players and they were particularly and adamantly opposed to playing any more football games in an expanded CFP. So we don't know who those are though. Then Phillips goes on to say, we have significant concerns surrounding a proposed expansion model. Though we'd be supportive of future expansion once and if concern these concerns are addressed, the membership believes that we have a responsibility in looking at the CFP and college football from a holistic perspective and not just whether to add more teams to a playoff. Collectively, we have much larger issues facing us than whether to expand the CFP early by two years. And they're talking about this pause, this holistic review of college football and the overall regulatory market relevant to college football and the work of the NCAA and the Transformation Committee. That's crucial. We have to have that nailed down before we talk about expansion. And my first question when I read that is, well, during this pause, are you also going to pledge to pause your lobbying efforts in Congress? Are you going to pledge to pull back on your attempts to completely federalize the NCAA Power Five compensation limits and the name, image, and likeness market, and all the things that would fundamentally alter the regulatory model in college sports that are far more consequential to the athletes than any talks about the expansion of the CFP. Is the ACC going to call off its lobbyist dogs in Washington? Is the Atlantic Coast Conference going to be honest about specifically what it seeks from Congress and what bills it supports and what bills it opposes? Is it going to do that? And is it going to share that with these athletes that they are so concerned about? I'll be talking more about that in other episodes. And the ACC's stealth use of the student athlete advisory committee, the ACC SAC committee, to get its message in front of Congress. And that happened right before the September 30th hearing in the House. And that's an interesting story. But what does this pause entail? What exactly are the agenda items to discuss during this pause? So Adelson goes on to try to present Phillips. Position here, and she says Phillips made the point more bluntly during a 30 minute phone call with a small group of reporters, specifically addressing several areas. He mentioned student athlete welfare, citing discussions with Clemson coach Dabo Swinney and new Miami coach Mario Cristobal and their concerns with health and safety in playing additional games. He also mentioned The major changes to collegiate athletics since expansion discussions first began in 2019, including name, image, and likeness rules, the transfer portal, and the NCAA governance structure that is undergoing a major overhaul. And now we get uh, Phillip's bottom line here. We don't know what the new governance structure is going to be, Phillips said. We don't know what Division I is going to look like. We don't know what's going to happen with the different subdivisions within the three. And so how can we put together the CFP expansion when we have no idea where this transformation committee is going to take us? So that's part of this instability, that we feel like this is not the right time for expansion. Now, I don't know about you, but if I am a sports journalist and Andrea Adelson is, is an excellent writer. I really like her stuff. And she does some great work within the limitations of ESPN's obvious conflicts of interest. But wouldn't it make sense to either question Phillips or raise independently why he didn't be a little more specific about his concerns since Jim Phillips sits on the NCAA Constitution Committee and the NCAA Division I Board of Directors Transformation Committee. He is commenting, making those observations on the concerns he has about the direction of those committees as if he's a complete stranger to them he is at ground zero with both of those committees and that obvious gap in the tape just reflects how information is manipulated how it's presented and how you really don't know what's actually happening behind the scenes and some of the best sports writers in the business aren't asking the tough questions so This goes back to what I said at the very beginning of the episode and what I built my podcast around. And that is that everything that we get runs through these filters of self-interest. And another ironic piece of this is that Phillips is justifying in part his position or the position of the ACC on the feedback that he's gotten from university presidents. And in this later article on June 17th, Heather Dinich, another great reporter for ESPN, she quotes Bob Bowlesby, the commissioner of the Big 12, as saying that Phillips is really being directed by the ACC's universities presidents and chancellors. I'm just like, wait a minute. Jim Phillips is sitting on this Constitution Committee and this Transformation Committee, and the new Constitution essentially eliminates the presidential leadership and control model of intercollegiate athletics that was a miserable failure and it was the product of the Knight Commission's recommendations in 1991 in their seminal report, keeping faith with the student athlete. And under this new constitution, the NCAA Board of Governors, which was specifically designed in the mid nineties to be top heavy with university presidents and chancellors, that body's gonna go from a body of 21 down to a body of nine. And instead of having 16 university presidents and chancellors, as was the case on the old board of governors, you're gonna have at most three and only one division, one university president or chancellor. And you have a token representative from divisions two II and three. I don't think they're consequential, but you have this deference to the university presidents and chancellors for this you know, decision to put the brakes on conference expansion. And this year long holistic review of college sports That has no parameters. I'd love to know what that looks like, but in his justification for the ACC's decision, he is relying on the very people that the committees that he sits on have excluded from the most important decision-making tables at the NCAA level and at the divisional level. And I just don't know how you jibe those two views. And maybe. Phillips voted against the Constitution. We we don't know. I think everything that has come out so far suggests unanimity. There always is unanimity at the NCAA. But when he's sitting on this Constitution committee and there's discussions about reducing the size of the board from 21 to 9 and giving the presidential control model a proper burial, did he vote against that? Does he have any thoughts on that? Wouldn't that be a logical question to ask? if you're really doing a critical analysis of this decision and the proffered reasons for it. And I I just don't see that. And some of what Phillips says just can't be reconciled with the roles of responsibility that he has under this new NCAA governance process. And he's going to be right there with a prominent seat at the table. And I just find it difficult to believe that he doesn't know what this transformation committee has in mind. It, it was formed with a purpose. And they've been very coy about w- what that is, unless it was just this naked power grab by the Power Five, which I, I believe is a, a threshold priority for the that committee. But Beyond that, there had to have been some discussion about what this committee was going to do, what it saw its role moving forward, and this notion of, well, we don't know yet, and gosh, we're just going to have some discussions, and it's all just going to play out the way it plays out, just give us time and trust us. That's the same garbage we've been hearing from in-system stakeholders and decision makers for decades, and it's one of the reasons that the NCAA is in the position that it's in right now, fighting for relevance and trying to align responsibilities and authorities. And I think this goes back also to this, these built-in conflicts of interest that exist in the college sports regulatory market and the business model writ large. And Jim Phillips, I believe, in sitting on the Constitution Committee and the uh, Division One Board of Directors Transformation Committee, he is serving essentially as a fiduciary for the interests of the NCAA when he's wearing his Constitution Committee hat and then for Division I when he's wearing his Transformation Committee hat and tying the expansion issue to the work of the transformation committee and trying to position the ACC for its unique interest within those three moving parts, looks to me like a conflict of interest, the same kind of conflict of interest that Greg Sankey's been accused of. So it's everywhere, it's ubiquitous. And unless we have external regulators coming in and just shutting down the NCAA and taking over, it's not going to change. We have the same people who created this mess sitting in the decision-making chairs claiming that they're gonna clean it up. And from Jim Phillips' perspective, the hat he wears as the ACC commissioner is not necessarily aligned with the hat he wears as the NCAA representative on the Constitution Committee or with the hat he wears as a representative and fiduciary of Division I interests. Those three things have inherent conflict and always have which is one of the reasons that we have this power grab by the power five. So I I just don't understand why those issues aren't part of the discussion. All we get are these articles that come through sources that are obviously conflicted, putting out whatever it is that Jim Phillips and the ACC want for public consumption at this point in time, and that may change next week or next month. And these Built-in and unacknowledged conflicts of interest are one of the reasons, I think, that when Condoleezza Rice finished up her work with the Commission on College Basketball, she described the business model, the governance model, and the relationship of all the stakeholders as a circular firing squad, because nobody wants to accept accountability. And on the backside of this constitutional makeover, we're going to be asking the same things. Who the hell is calling the shots? And to me, on paper, it looks like it's going to be the Power Five under the NCAA governance model. And on the business side, we know it's the Power Five. So, again, Philip's conflation of those three roles that he plays and those three interests really shines a bright light on the dysfunction in the governance model and in the conflict between the claimed values of the institutional interests, the NCAA interests, and the all oh, the in, the uh, Power 5 institutions, and the business motives. And they have always been in conflict, and this is just more of the same. And then uh, Adelson goes on to to try to put together a coherent article on, on all of the things that Phillips just throws on the wall and, in her defense. I think it's tough to do that because he's all over the map. And there's some suggestion that this was driven by The ACC's interest in trying to bring Notre Dame in as a full time member. I'm not even sure what the heck that means. And so he's having to field some criticism and he got some blowback on this. The message boards were criticizing his leadership and all that. But but you invite that when you make a bold statement like this that seems to be inconsistent with what uh, you had agreed upon before or led people to believe that you agreed upon before. And who knows? Who knows? Phillips is new and the position he has on. The conference issues and the in football and the expansion of the CFP may be much different than what John Swafford's were. Who knows? So maybe more will be revealed. Certainly it will, and all this will come into focus through the benefit of hindsight. So n- now I want to turn to this op-ed in USA Today by Arnie Duncan, who is a co-chair of the Knight Commission, and then Ashok McClendon, who is a member of the Knight Commission, and the, the title of this op-ed is what's wrong with the college football playoff there needs to be more for athletes and that last part is very important this is presented as an athlete oriented opinion piece and before I get into the substance of this op-ed I just want to point out and I talked about this a bit in my series on the NC State infractions and enforcement case and the role of Carol Cartwright who was on the Committee on Infractions and was managing all the basketball-related cases. She, at the time, was also the chair, a co-chair of the Knight Commission. And I talked about the Knight Commission's work, how it has evolved and how it has really moved away in many ways from its foundational premise and when it was formed in 1989, by Theodore Hesburgh, who was the former uh, president of Notre Dame, and Dr. William Friday, who was head of the University of North Carolina system. But the uh, the Knight Commission's very existence was premised on the belief that university presidents and chancellors were going to be the saviors of the misalignment between the business interests of big-time football and big-time men's basketball and the intellectual mission of higher education. And that is conflict that has existed in college sports It goes back to the early 20th century. And I've talked a lot about that, particularly in my pay for play series and the Carnegie report in 1929. And the Knight Commission in its early work cha- specifically channeled the Carnegie report and its admonition that ultimately the responsibility for all this mess lies at the feet of university presidents and chancellors. And that in that 1991 report, the Knight Commission built all of its recommendations to decrease commercialization in college sports, to de-emphasize the professionalized nature of, of college football and men's basketball, and to bring back into alignment in some rational way the big time revenue producing products and the goals and values of higher education. And that was gonna be through the university presidents and the commission specifically challenged those university presidents and chancellors to take control of their own institutions, to take control of their own enterprises, specifically including big time football and big time men's basketball. And it was the influence of the Knight Commission's work in the early 1990s that led to this movement at the NCAA level, for presidents and chancellors to have decision-making seats on the important governing boards. And that's what happened with the, what is now the Board of Governors and the Division I Board of Directors. And there was crossover representation. It was a big pile of conflict of interest. But since that model was put in place, things have only gotten worse. The presidential control and responsibility movement has been an absolute failure, And I've talked about that in some prior episodes, and I plan to do a series on the Knight Commission's work and how it has evolved. But one of the most important things to to take away from that is that the Knight Commission today is looking for new space where it can be relevant. It's in a battle for relevance as well, I think. And the presidential leadership and control movement was an absolute failure. You don't hear them talking that much about presidential control and responsibility for intercollegiate athletics. I don't think they can do that with a straight face. In fact, they have uh, continued to advocate for independent regulators, independent decision makers on these NCAA governing bodies that have been dominated by university presidents and chancellors. And it just falls into the, you can't make this stuff up category. But one of the things that they've tried to do is to pivot towards athlete-friendly issues. And the problem with that is that The Knight Commission, the NCAA, some of these other outside advocacy groups like the the Drake Group, their starting point is the protection of institutional interests. And when they start trying to talk about athletes' interests and athletes' rights and athlete well-being and protection, they're speaking that as a second language, athletes' rights as a second language. And quite frankly, they're just not very good at it. And they have some wonderful people on their board. And there are some things that I really agree with. Notably, their calls for transparency in college sports decision-making and in college sports finances. And I've been all on board with that. And that that goes back to their original uh, thinking and original philosophies from the early 1990s, but they haven't gotten much done there because the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries don't want people to know what's going on behind the scenes, how decisions are made or how the money actually moves or how much of it there actually is. So those criticisms are fine. But the Knight Commission is an independent nonprofit. It's an advocacy group. It doesn't have any formal role, but it still has sway because it has uh, a reputation. It's uh, manicured over the last, what is that now, 30 years? And it has important people who support it. But the other thing that's important to understand about the Knight Commission is that it has had a symbiotic relationship with the ncaa and when i talk about this narrow band these narrow parameters within which this these debates occur and you have the night commission telling the ncaa what to do or taking positions that seem for public relations purposes to be hostile to the ncaa's thinking or its decision making that's an illusion because there is very, very little distance between the Knight Commission and the NCAA. And when you go back and you look at who is currently on the Knight Commission, there are 21 members. And I'm not gonna talk about the the demographic profile. It actually on paper looks pretty good. You have uh, a lot of uh, black men on, on the commission. And I think that's a good thing because that kind of representation is absent, I think, from the NCAA governing boards, but there is not a single current revenue-producing athlete, either a big-time football player or a big-time basketball player, black or white. So while they're talking now through the lens of uh, student rights and athlete interests and protecting the interests of the athletes, they don't have any current athletes who are in the trenches right now offering input. They have a couple of athletes who are several years removed, but none in a revenue-producing sport. They're in non-revenue sports. But putting that aside, when you look at the composition of this very impressive board, let's see, you have eight of the... 21 members are current or former university presidents and chancellors and then you have three high-level university administrators either on the general university side or the athletic side and you have a conference commissioner so that's 12 over 57 you know, percent are coming out of the belly of the beast that created this mess okay but more importantly When you go back and you look through the, they have some, the bios for all these people. And again, they're very impressive backgrounds. But you have uh, 14 of the 21 members who have had some level of crossover with the NCAA. And some have been involved more than others. Some have had kind of token advisory roles. But you also have some people who served at the highest levels on governing boards, including a former chair of what is now the, the Board of Governors and a former member of the Division I Board of Directors. So you have these direct crossovers to the NCAA structure and the governance process. And the NCAA is not going to allow a single person to serve in those, any capacity like that unless they are locked stock, and barrel NCAA value system down the line. And that's true for most of the members of the Knight Commission. And in connection with the NCAA Power Five's engagement with Congress to get a, the complete federalization of their business model and the protection of their compensation limits and the elimination of external regulatory threats, you had uh, at least two that I'm looking at here. There may have been more at least two of the members who actually testified in Congress. And the first one was presented as a student athlete, Kendall Spencer, who ran track at New Mexico. And then he was on the Division I Board of Directors as a non-voting member, and he was involved with the National Student Athlete Advisory Committee, the SAC Committee. But uh, Spencer testified at the very first hearing on February 11th of 2020, when the NCAA and Power Five were laying the foundation for their congressional campaign. And they went to uh, to Congress and said, we need your help. They were very coy about what that help was gonna be. They weren't talking about preemption and antitrust immunity and a provision that athletes cannot be deemed employees. They were very coy. It was get your foot in the door, but uh, Mr. Spencer was there and he's a very impressive person. And he spoke in a way that suggested that he was on board with name, image, and likeness rights, but there wasn't any honest discussion at that first hearing about how we were gonna get there and what the backside would look like after the NCAA and Power Five got all these federal protections and immunities. And then he is on the NCAA Constitution Committee, and he's also on the NCAA Division I Board of Directors Transformation Committee. He's up to his eyeballs in NCAA. Dr. Wayne Frederick, president of Howard University, and and both of these gentlemen are are African-American. Dr. Frederick testified at that June 9th hearing in Senate Commerce, which was the NCAA Power Five's last-ditch attempt to try to get preemption. It was a preemption-only hearing where they just wanted to eliminate the states from the regulatory field and get these name, image, and likeness laws that were set to go into effect on July 1st completely taken off the books. And... His argument was very subtle. He very clearly supported preemption. That was the the preemption festival. (laughs) There were six witnesses. Five said, yes, preemption. We've got to have preemption. We've got to have it right now, immediately. Dr. Frederick had a different take because he is the president of an HBCU. He's also a physician. And I really liked a lot of what he had to say on the health and safety issues, the very health and safety issues that we're going to talk about in this op-ed and what Jim Phillips was talking about in the ACC decision, what he wanted to focus on. But Dr. Frederick was, as I understood his testimony, arguing against any federal mandate that would require institutions to adhere to some minimal enforceable standards on health and safety because he said it would break the bank for institutions like Howard University. That's not a pro-athlete position, quite frankly. That is a business decision coming at it from an institutional Standpoint, And it's a legitimate concern. It's a real concern. I don't think that was ever going to was ever the intent of any of the proposed legislation in, in Congress that was athlete friendly, like the Athletes Bill of Rights. I think there was going to be mean testing there. But Dr. Frederick's testimony was not, in my judgment athlete-friendly, certainly not on the preemption issue. So you have this crossover and it is substantial crossover. And I don't see a wits difference between the substantive positions that the Knight Commission is now advocating for and the value system of the NCAA. It all operates within this very narrow, narrow pathway. And those guardrails are defined by NCAA values, NCAA restrictions, and NCAA business motives. So with that in mind, let's let's take a look at this op-ed. So Duncan was uh, the secretary of education under Obama. And I mentioned him in a, a prior episode. He went to Harvard. He played basketball at Harvard and the Duke team that, that I played on my senior year, we went up to Harvard and we we played them. They had a heck of a team. And Duncan was a, a really good player. He played professionally, I think, uh, overseas for a while. Of course, uh, Jacques McClendon is a former NFL player and great guys. And Len Elmore is uh, the other co-chair of that uh, committee. McClendon's not a co-chair, but Duncan and Elmore and then Nancy Zimpler, who is a university president, uh, former university president or chancellor. But th- that's great leadership. And Zimpler doesn't come out of the NCAA mold. Elmore has a, a unique perspective and he was a phenomenal... Athlete and one of my favorite players. I, even though I was, I was a Duke fan, I, I had allegiance to the Maryland teams. M- my dad was from Maryland, and, and John Lucas, who played with Elmore on those great Maryland teams, who's from Durham, my hometown. So I followed those Maryland teams, and and I, I love those teams. And then after his professional career, uh, Elmore went to Harvard Law School, and I think he's done some work in, in private practice, but he's been involved in advocacy for a good number of years now. But here's what uh, Duncan and McClendon say, and they're talking about the, you know, Georgia having just won the CFP. And there was discussion immediately after that about the expansion of the CFP. And they say, that's the wrong debate to be having now. Before the college football playoff expands and before it renegotiates a media contract that could be, that could push total revenues up to $2 billion, revenues that will far surpass even those of March Madness. The playoff should first reform itself. Does that sound familiar? That's what Jim Phillips said. So Duncan and McLennan go on to say, put simply, the playoff should require that most of its lucrative revenue distributions be earmarked for the first time to specifically advance athlete health, safety, and education. Does that sound familiar? That's what Phillips said. And remember, in the coverage of phillips's announcement on behalf of the acc there was zero reference to this uh, night commission initiative and to this op-ed that was released just 24 hours before they go on expansion without reform will worsen the badly skewed priorities of big revenue football where exorbitant salaries and multi-million dollar buyouts for fbs coaches are only the most glaring symptoms of a warped financial model that places a premium on spending for competitive advantage. No newsflash there. That Again, that has been a problem in the big-time college sports marketplace going back really to the 1970s and the evolution of the Power Five and, of course, the Board of Regents era when these big-time powerful football interests sued for their, their financial freedom from the NCAA monopoly over televised football, and they won. And they want. So then they have a section in this op-ed that says, where does the money go? And it says the college football playoffs, unwillingness to take responsibility for athlete well-being remains one of the great unreported stories in all of college sports. Now, let's just wait a minute here. So Duncan and McClendon are trying to make this an issue about the CFP, the college football playoff. They're the problem. But what the hell about the NCAA? The CFP is comprised of university presidents and chancellors. And as uh, Duncan explains uh, a little later, the CFP is a private entity. It's formed as a limited liability company, not as an education nonprofit. I wrote about that in my blog, and, and there's a reason for that. They couldn't get away with trying to claim legitimate nonprofit status because it is a money-making enterprise as is the entire power five business model that has operated under the NCAA umbrella and they go on that story is routinely missed for two reasons first lack of transparency by the college football playoff makes it difficult to quote unquote follow the money amen no doubt no doubt second There's a widespread but mistaken belief that the NCAA oversees the playoffs. In fact, the college football playoff is operated through an LLC, entirely independent of the NCAA, and controlled by a small group of FBS university presidents and FBS conference commissioners. But there are a few things, just in those two paragraphs, that I think are are worth pointing out. They try to isolate the CFP as somehow operating outside of the value system of the NCAA, or the overall college sports business model regulatory model and value system and that's just not the case they are this unique product because they have financial independence from the ncaa but they have operated under the ncaa umbrella for very good reasons and i talked about that in my episode on on why the power five don't just leave the ncaa all together but this notion that uh, the cfp is the problem everything was great until they came onto the scene. It just isn't consistent with the history of the powerful football interest rolling hostile takeover of college sports at the regulatory level and at the business model level. And that goes back again to the Walter Byers years. And on this question of whether this is a great unreported story, I have two, two thoughts on that. One, where's the Knight Commission been on this? I mean, the CFP has been in place since 2012 and has been playing games since 2015 in the same business model. And I would say that the greatest unreported story of our generation, not just of of what's happened over the last couple of years, but of our generation is the NCAA and Power Five attempt through their congressional campaigns and their campaigns in federal courts to completely federalize their business model, yet have control over it at the federal level and eliminate the athletes' rights movement. That is the great unreported story. And the uh, Knight Commission hasn't said boo about that because they have advocated for some of the very things that the Power Five and the NCAA are seeking in their congressional campaign and in their litigation strategy. And they've had a couple of members of their board testify in Congress in general support of what the NCAA and Power Five were doing. That's the great unreported story, not the excesses in big time college football. Those are important. and. Those have been on the table for decades, and I would just say, where's the Knight Commission been on that? Uh, And then we have this. Surprisingly, the NCAA receives no money from the college football playoff or from any FBS football revenue source, even though the NCAA pays for the national operations cost for FBS football. The NCAA, for example pays for costly FBS football related litigation including lawsuits filed by former athletes who suffered injuries and illnesses i, I just have to stop right there surprisingly that model that basic model of college football big time college football keeping all its money and not sharing it with anybody else and the overall NCAA expenses the association wide expenses that co- that the big time football interests benefit from are paid from March Madness revenue. That's been in place since Border Regents. That goes back to 1984. Are you surprised in 2022? You shouldn't be because that basic dynamic has been in place for 40 years. They go on to say, The college football playoff does not directly allocate a dime to cover the national costs of athlete health and safety, despite high rates of concussions among football players. By contrast, the NCAA March Madness tournament bears the national costs of FBS concussion research, catastrophic insurance, and the development of game rules to protect players. And again, I want to stop right there. This is presented as if this is some news flash. This is some great breaking story in big time college sports. I've been talking about this since the very beginning of my blogging. And I have been saying to i blue in the face that this is one of the fatal flaws in the overall business model. And it's not the NCAA that pays. The revenue that the NCAA uses to spread around and to provide welfare to divisions two and three and to underwrite all the administrative expenses that big time football doesn't want to pay for. That is the product of the talent and labor of elite division one men's basketball players, the overwhelming majority of whom are African-American. This isn't new stuff. This is stuff that the system has refused to acknowledge for decades. And in that regard, I just want to make clear that I agree with what Duncan and McClendon are saying about the big time powerful football interests getting a free ride off the backs of March Madness money. And that has been a problem. But I, I don't think that is the product of the college football playoff itself. It's the product of the Power Five's rolling aggregation of power over the years to take control of governance and complete control of the business model. And then Duncan and McClendon go on to state what's pretty obvious, and that is that the very purpose of the CFP was to keep all of that revenue that the NCAA can't get its hands on, in large part because of Board of Regents. But eighty percent of that goes to the Power Five and then and to Notre Dame. And then the remaining twenty percent is spread around to a group of five conferences and schools. And that basic formula, that basic way of thinking about the business model, this goes back again. For decades, And when I transition into this transformation committee and the uh, football interests that are driving the train here in the NCAA governance process, I'm going to go back to some of the hearings that occurred in the 1990s and in the early 2000s, where you get an unadulterated view of just how the big time powerful football interests see themselves relative to the rest of college sports. And there's just breathtaking greed and arrogance. That is hasn't changed, and this is nothing new. And then they say this, conferences and institutions can divvy up the money however they see fit. Yes, they can. The ACA can't tell them what to do, and there's no external regulator that tells them what to do. And that's true with the March Madness money that winds up going back to the universities. About half of it goes back to the actual division that it comes from, Division One, But the NCAA has no control over how that money is spent. It has some nominal reporting requirements for certain categories of, of funds, these made-up funds that really have little meaning. But the NCAA has no enforcement jurisdiction to second-guess how a school spends any of that money. And the schools wouldn't allow the NCAA to have that kind of authority. And then they go through some of the usual talking points. All this money is going to coaching salaries, of course, and and to dead money. And then we really get to the heart of the problem with this message coming from the Knight Commission. They say, the college football playoff reform should slow, not accelerate the athletics arms race. The Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, an independent group on which we serve, recently proposed a new framework, connecting athletes' revenues with the educational model of college sports, the care model. I'm not quite sure what the educational model is. I don't know if that's been defined. That would be a good start towards reform. The model would require that the CFP earmark money for athlete health, safety, and education, and it would mandate much-needed financial transparency by requiring disclosure and would include athletes in independent oversight of the college football playoff. Division I leaders, understand that the incentives and spending of more than $3 billion of total shared revenues among FBS schools must be overhauled. That's why 21 coaches associations representing more than 300 men's and women's college sports and more than 84,000 Division I athletes have already endorsed the CARE proposal. Okay, there's just a lot right there. They talk about the need to take to put the brakes on the athletics arms race. That was a talking point, a rallying cry for the uh, Knight Commission in its early work, and was a central normative theme in their 1991 report. We, the university presidents and chancellors, need to put the brakes on this. But guess what? The arms race only accelerated at an alarming rate under the leadership of the very presidents that the knight commission recommended should be in control of intercollegiate sports and in connection with this money being sent to athlete health safety and education initiatives they don't talk about exactly how that would work out but basically they're talking about a new diversion of wealth process a, a welfare system where the big time revenue producing sports Are going to send money to beneficiaries who can't pay for themselves and that is implicit in the way that they characterize the interests that support their proposal and when they talk about these 21 coaches associations representing more than 30 men's and women's college sports they don't say that all those sports are non-revenue sports i I, I pulled up a list from the website and it is the same list of quote-unquote olympic sport interests That the NCAA and Power Five trotted out in June of 2020 to make the case that in the name, image, and likeness debate, if these star athletes got name, image, and likeness, quote unquote, compensation, then all that money was going to come directly out of the coffers of the uh, universities that are sponsoring all these non revenue sports. And it's going to be a crime against the Olympic sports interests. And that uh, schools are going to start cutting scholarships and then they're going to be cutting sports. And it's going to result in the collapse of the intercollegiate sports model. That was a big, fat lie. It was designed specifically to prevent athletes from competing with the existing in-system stakeholder revenue streams and these bloated coaching salaries, the very coaching salaries that the Knight Commission says are a problem. Just as with the regressive transfer of wealth from elite Division One men's basketball players to all kinds of downstream beneficiaries, overwhelmingly white, who can't pay for themselves. You have the same thinking here when the Knight Commission invokes these non-revenue sports and the Coaches Association, and there's no acknowledgement about who the people are in this transfer of wealth. The fact that these non-revenue athletes are overwhelmingly white, and I don't think that the Knight Commission can dispute that or that the labor that generates the revenue in football is disproportionately African-American. And then there's a section titled Pushing for Reform, and with no acknowledgement of the irony in this, Duncan and McLennan say, the NCAA also can push for college football playoff to reform itself by refusing to cover national costs for FBS football since the NCAA doesn't control the sports national championship or receive any related Revenues. Really? The NCAA can do that? Where the hell have they been on that? They've had that issue on the table again since 1984. And rather than putting pressure on football interests to pay their fair share for the association wide expenses, the NCAA has run interference for the Power Five so that the NCAA can keep their March Madness bonanza and keep the national office bureaucracy up and running. This corrupt bureaucracy churning forward with a guaranteed renewable revenue stream of over a billion dollars a year. And I also want to point out that the Knight Commission is very selective in identifying the areas of concern with excessive spending and misalignment of priorities. They don't say boo about the excesses in the NCAA national office or the obscene salaries or the lavish spending. Or the lack of accountability for how that money is spent. The Knight Commission talks about transparency, but they're not asking for a forensic accounting of the NCAA National Office. And I've talked about this in in prior episodes as well. And I think that reflects the change in national office leadership over the years, particularly since Miles Brand in uh, 2003 became the NCAA president, and he was a former university president. So we've had two decades of university presidents, Miles Brand and Mark Emmert, holding the top job in the NCAA, and I think that there is this really unhealthy sense of collegiality where the university presidents that have dominated the the Knight Commission's work and its thinking don't want to criticize another university president. And in the shadow of that silence, you have a NCAA national office that is out of control. And the Knight Commission doesn't say boo about that. The Knight Commission rails coaching salaries, and they've done that for years. And I don't know how you can look at the excesses in coaching salaries and then turn a blind eye to the excessive salaries at the NCAA National Office. What about Mark Emmert's $4 million salary? What about the black hole miscellaneous expenses on the NCAA's Form 990 tax disclosures? What about the conferencing? What about the private jets? What about the whining and dining? Where's the curiosity on that? And I want to point out something that I wrote about in my blog when I was talking about the Knight Commission reports. They did a report in... 2010. It was their last substantive report titled Restoring the Balance, Dollars, Values, and the Future of College Sports. And they were talking about the unsustainable expenditures in big time college sports. And they point to coaching salaries as the single largest contributing factor to the unsustainable growth of athletics expenditures. And at the values level, they framed those excesses around universities being forced to choose between funding freshman English and funding these football salaries and football operating expenses. But... When it comes to actually looking at the NCAA's excesses, they basically uh, give the NCAA a free pass. In fact, they applaud the NCAA's good work over the past five years in improving the accuracy of financial data and organizing that information into a database accessible to all presidents, but not to the public. But not to the public. And I'm going to talk more about that in upcoming episodes. These valuable efforts provide a solid foundation on which to build, but much more needs to be done. And I just think that if if you're going to start pointing the finger at this system, the football system and the revenue-producing products, you have to look at the excesses and the people who are responsible for reining that in. And, you know, even if they make this point, Purely at the symbolic level, wouldn't it be a breath of fresh air for the Knight Commission to look at the NCAA national office and say that office deserves the same scrutiny as every other aspect of the business model? Because those are the people that have held themselves out as the guardians and the protectors of these principles that are directly at odds with the course of big-time college sports. And the people in the national office are benefiting from that system. And they are benefiting enormously. Mm -hmm. And then the Knight Commission's op-ed points to Bob Gates' initial framing of the work of the Constitution Committee in terms of aligning authorities and responsibilities. And they say, The failure of both the NCAA and the CFP to address the misaligned authority and responsibility for FBS football puts at risk the financial stability of college sports for more than 1,000 schools and some 460,000 athletes. Wait a minute. I thought you were just talking about Division I. Now we're using this conflation argument, and the entire college sports business models at risk, including divisions two and divisions three, because that 460,000 athlete figure is the total of all athletes across all three divisions. And explain why those interests are put at risk of financial instability. How, How are they harmed by what happens in this transfer of wealth? at the Division I level. They've already been bought off in this Constitution Committee. They don't say that. Acknowledge that through the March Madness money, the Division II and Division Three interests have already been purchased to get the votes they need to get a two-thirds majority for this new Constitution, which puts the Power Five in charge. I mean, again, what's left out uh, of this op-ed and the thinking that goes behind it Could fill the Grand Canyon. But you're back to some of the same problems that exist when you have these very powerful interest groups, even with with the Knight Commission, which doesn't have a formal role in the NCAA or in in the business model. They're an external advocacy group. But when they speak, people listen, which is why USA Today gave the Knight Commission uh, a lot of space in its op ed column. And the Knight Commission's had a very good relationship with USA Today. And I think pretty much can get an op ed in there whenever they need to. And it's an, an important op-ed, and it makes some important points, but all within these very narrow parameters that reinforce the suppositions that are brought into the debate and the limitations of the debate and the values that frame the debate. And I, I just don't see much difference at all, much space between where the Knight Commission lands and has always landed at the values level when it comes to the regulation of college sports and the business of college sports and where the NCAA lands. They have this power five football interest that's been the, the bully in the room and nobody is going to stand up to them because they've always threatened to just take their ball and go home. And as I wrap this thing up, I just want to reemphasize the importance of looking at all the things that are happening at or about the same time and not looking at them in isolation. I think you have to look at this Knight Commission op-ed on January 13th. Along with the comments of Jim Phillips, the ACC commissioner, the next day, who was saying exactly what the Knight Commission said before. I think they're connected. It's not clear exactly what the communications have been between the ACC and the Knight Commission. But I think when you look at the substance of what Phillips said and then the substance of this op-ed, you see that they are virtually the same and seek the same goal. And then the way that the NCAA on January 14th through this social series podcast tried to, I think, in some ways preempt some of the energy of that op-ed and then Phillips' announcement by saying, look, there's a, a lot to do here. This is work in progress, so be patient. And that's been a theme that's come through this social series podcast that yeah, we're going to get all this constitutional stuff in order. But then, then the work really begins. And so you have all these things moving together. And I think they reflect the uncertainty that surrounds the future of college sports. And I think the most important overarching theme is that despite what appears to be some differences of opinion and maybe some behind-the-scenes squabbling and positioning, All of these interests are operating within a very narrow set of parameters that are very similar and are ultimately premised on some of the same values that have supported this business model and the corruption in it for almost 70 years. All right, with that, I'm going to go ahead and close this thing out and we'll see what happens with this new constitution. And I'll take some time to to parse that final document and compare it to the prior drafts and see if there has been anything new added or deleted. And then we will be on our way to talking about next steps with this transformation committee and some background on uh, what I think the Power Five really want out of all this. And we have a template for that, really going back to the 1990s, but in a more formal form with this autonomy movement in 2013, 2014. Okay. So I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.